Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Friday, March 10th, 2023. A group of very conservative House Republicans, known as the Freedom Caucus, lay out federal spending cut requirements as their condition for supporting an increase in the debt ceiling, which would be needed later this year to avoid a national default. President Joe Biden rejecting the Freedom Caucus demands, saying it is reckless to threaten default if they do not get their way. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen testifying before the House Ways and Means Committee about the debt limit, including a Republican proposal to set federal spending priorities if the limit is not increased. Also talking about proposed tax increases in the president's 2024 budget released this week, he says tax increases only on those making over $400,000 a year. U.S. House today passing a bill to declassify U.S. intelligence on the origins of the COVID-19 virus, including anything related to the Wuhan Institute of Virology in China. Senate already passed this bill, so it goes to President Biden's desk. White House not saying at this point whether the president will sign it into law. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy signing a bill that will overturn a recent District of Columbia crime law. This enrollment of the bill is the last step before it goes to the president. He says he will sign that bill into law. And it's time for the debate over daylight saving time. Clock's turning ahead one hour this weekend. We'll hear from a U.S. senator who is trying to stop the clock switching and make daylight saving time permanent year-round. We begin with the House Freedom Caucus News Conference on the federal budget and debt limit. Wall Street Journal reports the most conservative block of House Republicans said it wants tight restrictions on government spending in exchange for approving a debt ceiling increase, which Congress must pass later this year to avoid potentially defaulting on the nation's debt and other obligations. Members of the House Freedom Caucus, a group of about three dozen GOP lawmakers who take hardline stances on issues, including government spending and immigration, said in a position paper Friday that they want a near freeze on discretionary spending for 10 years to halt President Biden's plan to forgive some student debt and rescind $80 billion previously approved for expansion of the Internal Revenue Service. The House Freedom Caucus chair, Congressman Scott Perry, Republican from Pennsylvania, began today's news conference. On December 23rd of last year, Democrats voted for a $1.7 trillion blowout known as the Omnibus. Just two weeks later, two weeks after that, the point is, is they knew, two weeks after that, on January 13th, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen informed America that our debt had reached its statutory limit. The point is, is that this current debt crisis has been created solely by reckless Democrat policies and out-of-control spending. However, America will not default on our debts unless President Biden chooses to do so. To ensure America does not default on our debts, the House Freedom Caucus is offering a responsible solution to the self-imposed crisis. Members of the House Freedom Caucus who have never voted for continual debt ceiling increases will support a solution to responsibly address the impending debt ceiling crisis. Simply put, the plan is to shrink Washington and grow America. To shrink Washington, we save money now by ending President Biden's $400 billion student loan loan bailout. We rescind all unobligated COVID-19 funds. We recoup the $80 billion in IRS expansion funds. 
and we recoup billions of dollars of wasteful climate change spending in the so-called Inflation Reduction Act and by finding every single dollar spent by Democrats that can be reclaimed for the American taxpayer. Doing this will lower dollar for dollar the amount needed for any increase in the debt ceiling. It's actually what families across America who find themselves overextended must do. To shrink Washington also means ensuring a strong military while returning to pre-pandemic non-defense spending levels. By keeping future top-line discretionary spending at the FY22 level for 10 years, we cut $131 billion in FY24 and save roughly $3 trillion over the long term by cutting the wasteful, woke, and weaponized federal bureaucracy. When we shrink Washington this way, it enables Congress to use the appropriations process to address the many abuses and disasters caused by the Biden administration, such as the chaos at our southern border, the COVID vaccine, the COVID vaccine mandates and the and associated discriminatory policies, and the unconstitutional ATF rule, just to name a few. Importantly, spending for the next 10 years at the FY22 levels puts our budget on a path to balance while protecting Social Security, retirement, and Medicare benefits. Because solving our debt problem must include a strong economy that reflects the work ethic and determination of the American people, the next part of the Freedom Caucus plan is to grow America. We grow America by enacting major policy changes and reforms to the wasteful, woke, and weaponized federal bureaucracy, including but not limited to curtailing burdensome regulations by ensuring congressional approval under the RAINS Act, unleashing the production of reliable domestic energy by, un by ending unnecessary federal regulations and subsidies, by restoring Clinton-era work requirements on welfare programs, and by passing a preemptive continuing resolution with non-defense discretionary spending restored to the pre-COVID FY 2019 level to force Congress to do its work and pass appropriations in a timely manner. We can solve our debt crisis responsibly if we shrink Washington and grow America. Members of the House Freedom Caucus are ready to roll up our sleeves and get to work voting now on these proposals, and we're willing to do it today. Congressman Scott Perry, Republican from Pennsylvania, chair of the House Freedom Caucus, at a news conference today with other members of that caucus, all of them Republicans, on Capitol Hill. TheHill.com explains the hardline conservative caucus wants to cap overall discretionary spending at fiscal 2022 levels for 10 years while allowing for 1% growth per year which would be a $131 billion cut from current levels. The group would aim to keep defense spending at current levels. Later at the White House, President Joe Biden making a statement about today's Labor Department jobs report and promoting his proposed fiscal year 2024 federal budget request, which he unveiled yesterday. The February jobs report showing the U.S. economy added 311,000 jobs and the unemployment rate increased from 3.4% to 3.6%, President calling it a good jobs report, saying we've created more jobs in two years than any administration has created in the first four years. Then the president talked about the need to raise the debt limit later this year to avoid a first-ever default, and what the House Freedom Caucus said earlier. And now the biggest threat to our recovery is the reckless talk, the reckless talk, my MAGA friends, 
This is not your, as I heard me say, it's not your father's Republican Party, but the Republicans in the United States Congress. They, uh, they, they, well, what they want to do with regard to the debt limit. You know, they're threatening to fall on our national debt. In fact, planning to fall, as some Republicans seem to be doing, puts us very much at risk. I believe we should be building on our progress, not go backwards. So I urge our extreme MAGA Republican friends in the Congress to put their threats aside. Join me in continuing the progress we built. We've got a lot more to do, so let's finish the job. And by the way, you know, we talk about what's what there's. I, I just saw my staff hand as I was coming in. The House Freedom Caucus. The members of the House Caucus will consider voting to raise the debt ceiling contingent upon the enactment of legislation. You know what the essence of the enactment of legislation is? Cut all spending other than defense by 25 percent. 25 percent across the board. Now that means cops, firefighters. It means health care. It means that's just what they call discretionary spending, as you all know. And, uh, and on top of that, uh, the, what they're really f focused on, I saw here, we'll get, I, I shouldn't get into all this now, but is uh, what it's kind of surprised me. They, uh, they want to make sure we don't have enough IRS agents. You know those IRS agents we had? They're going to check on the accounts of the super wealthy, which require a lot of accounting, a lot of agents to look at it. <laughs> They want to get rid of them. I don't know. We just have a very different value set. Anyway, I'm optimistic. We're going to get the, uh, the CPI next week. Hopefully, we'll be in, in, uh, in some solid shape. But anyway, yes. Uh, Mr. President, are you concerned that rising interest rates will put a damper on this job growth and impact the economy? And you mentioned the Freedom Caucus. Do you have uh, any openness to negotiating on any of the issues that they mentioned? <laughs> Well, um, first of all, we don't know what the CPI is going to be this week, it's, but it's been down. Interest rates have been down. The inflation has been down for many weeks in a row now. And I said, we're going to see blips going up, uh, I, but I I'm, I'm feel confident that we're headed in the right direction. Um, and, uh, and there's a lot of talk about what the Fed will do and not do. We'll see. We'll see what the Fed will do. But um, we'll see what, this, what the CPI is. I guess it's Tuesday or Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Next week is coming out. Um, the idea that uh, um, I'm going to agree that we start to figure out where we cut 25% across the board. By the way, their entire program does not lower the deficit one single penny. They're keeping, if, they, if what they say they mean, they're going to keep the tax cuts from the last president, number one, almost $2 trillion. If they're going to, in fact, no additional taxes on the, on the wealthy, a matter of fact, reducing taxes. And in addition to that, on top of that, they're going to say we have to cut 25 percent of every program across the board. I don't, I don't know what there's much to negotiate on. Um, but I'm, I'm prepared. I told the speaker, as soon as he's ready to lay out his budget, I'm willing to sit down. And now I'm hearing things like, well, we're not going to have our budget till April or May, maybe even June. All this talk pushing me to get my budget done. I said I'd have it done by the 9th. I had it done by the 9th. I handed it to you guys. I handed it to them. Why all of a sudden can't they get it done in March or maybe even April?
maybe even May. I mean, I don't, I don't know. It doesn't sound like they're on the level yet. So thank you very much. President Biden at the White House. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen testifying today before the House Ways and Means Committee about the president's budget proposal for the next fiscal year. Congresswoman Susan Del Bene, Democrat from Washington State, asked Secretary Yellen about a bill that passed the committee this week titled the Default Prevention Act. It would prioritize government obligations in the case that the national debt limit is not raised. At the top of the list, principal and interest on the public debt, Medicare, Social Security, veterans programs, military pay, and Defense Department operations. And at the bottom of the priority list in this bill, executive branch pay, including the president's and vice president's salary, members of Congress salary, government travel, and official union time. During yesterday's markup of the Republicans' debt prioritization bill, I asked the majority staff a technical question that they couldn't answer regarding the logistical possibility of debt prioritization. And so I just wanted to ask you, Madam Secretary, is it feasible for Treasury's payment systems to prioritize payments to bondholders over debt? I think that we should not think that prioritization is a solution to the debt ceiling issue. Prioritization is simply not paying all of the government's bills when they come due. That is something we have never done since 1789. And that really is just default by another name. So what's critical is that we maintain our commitment to pay the government's bills, all the government's bills, when they come due. And if we don't do that and think that there's some shortcut around it that will avoid economic chaos, we're kidding ourselves because not paying the government's bills will produce economic and financial collapse. And I would say that Fitch has already made clear um, in comments that they issued that a failure to pay all of the government bills um, would potentially prompt a downgrade of our debt. Thank you, Madam Secretary. I appreciate that. I yield back, Mr. Chairman. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, questioned by Congresswoman Susan Del Bene, Democrat from Washington State, at today's Ways and Means Committee hearing. The committee passed this government payment prioritization bill on Thursday by a vote of 21 to 17. The Treasury Secretary also getting questions today about the details of the president's budget proposal, specifically the tax increases the president says will be on corporations and wealthy individuals only. Here are Congressman Vern Buchanan, Republican from Florida, and Lloyd Doggett, Democrat from Texas, with the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen. A trillion dollars, they're talking about tax increases on small business. That's the proposed budget uh, in terms of pass-through entities. I'm very concerned. That puts the American dream clearly at risk. So 39.5, you add up the other things, you're probably 46. If you figure in New York, New Jersey, I'm in Florida, Texas, you look a little differently, or California, you're close to 60% for pass-through entities. These are small businesses for the most part, 50 employees or less. And it's obvious to me personally that many of you have never been in business because you'd understand that the cost of capital is not available for a lot of these small businesses, especially in the environment we're in today. A lot of people are concerned. But how do you, how do you 
think about the idea of another trillion dollars on our small business, medium-sized businesses. The, the, the president pledged not to raise taxes on any individual or small business earning under $400,000. Well, I'm just saying that if someone's There's got a- There's not a single penny- Let me just finish on this point. If someone's got 100 employees and they make six, 700, the business does, they take out 100, they pay their taxes and they have a few bucks they can help their balance sheet. And that's the reality in the small business world. Just because as a small business you make 600 doesn't mean you take that home. You need that money to grow. That's the fuel to grow your business. With that, I yield back. Gentleman from Texas is recognized. Madam Secretary, uh, I admire your courage in going to Ukraine, and I'm glad you're battle-tested for coming here to our committee. Thanks. Uh, let me ask you, uh, I'm hopeful that the Republicans will get to us their budget plan in 30 days, just as they've asked for commitments from, from you to do things within 30 days. They seem to think that uh, we can continue to uh, deal with our debt problems by removing revenue uh, from uh, our vital public services. And I want to touch on two areas uh, that I think the President and you have acted most appropriately to sustain our needs. One of those is for Medicare. They say belatedly now that they won't cut Medicare, but they seem unwilling to make the changes that are necessary to sustain Medicare for our grandchildren as well as for our current seniors. Uh, I introduced legislation last year concerning the net investment uh, income tax, and, and I have reintroduced it, and I see that's included in the President's budget. Isn't it correct that the estimates are that about 85% of that increase would be paid by those who earn a million dollars or more a year, and that none of the tax burden would be on those below 400,000. That, that's, cor that's correct, and the proposal um, wouldn't raise it on anyone making under $400,000, and the revenue would be devoted to, um, to Medicare to shoring up the hospital uh, trust fund. And the president, I believe, uh, has a plan to extend it uh, even beyond 2040, just closing the loophole and correcting the mistake that was made about the net investment income would extend Medicare solvency to 2040. So if people really believe in Medicare, they'd be willing to take the steps to ensure it's there. And of course, the second one, and it mystifies me at the creativity of our Republican colleagues in coming up to, for excuses to defend multinationals for not paying their fair share for our national security, though they benefit from it perhaps more than any other group in our society. So I admire your leadership on the global minimum tax. Uh, this newest excuse we've heard this morning is that it's going to all help China. Uh, they helped China yesterday with their China bond first program, but tell me about why it is an era to claim that China will somehow benefit from stopping the race to the bottom? China will not benefit at all from this. China will be forced to raise their minimum tax on their multinationals up to the level of 15% on a country-by-country -country basis. And China has signed on to the agreement, but if for any reason China failed to enact this tax and put it in place, there is an enforcement mechanism built into this agreement by which the United States or other countries in which Chinese 
um, firms do business where they have subsidiaries doing business, we would impose a top-up tax on Chinese corporations operating in the United States or in, in Europe where they've already put the tax into place. So if China doesn't tax these firms, these, they're multinationals, we will do it and we'll keep the tax revenue. But one way or another, we will level the playing field so Chinese firms are on the same footing as our multinationals. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you. Testimony of Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen at today's Ways and Means Committee hearing. The questions coming from two members of the committee, Vern Buchanan, Republican from Florida, and Lloyd Doggett, Democrat from Texas. The committee chair, Jason Smith, Republican from Missouri, had a question to the secretary about a new website for IRS whistleblowers that the committee's Republican majority created this year to let IRS workers tell the committee anonymously about, quote, any inappropriate behavior or mishandling of taxpayer information at the agency. As you know, we've established a portal to allow IRS employees to share information with this committee about any kind of conduct that's going on at the IRS that they think that we should know of since we're the committee of jurisdiction for oversight. I sent a letter to the IRS and asked that it be shared with all IRS employees. The agency has thus far refused to do so. That is completely unacceptable. IRS employees should know the options they have to report wrongdoing to Congress that they may witness at work. This is a simple issue. It's about basic transparency and accountability. Will you commit to sharing information about our IRS whistleblower portal with IRS employees? Well, I want to say that we have very strong whistleblower No, I, that's what I've heard, but would you... Will you my question is, is will you share our whistleblower with the IRS employees, yes or no? Um, I think what is important is that IRS employees know what their full set exactly. of so, options are, and they certainly can report to this committee. They can report to other committees. But will you share this. this whistleblower information to your IRS employees, yes or no? I will make sure that they have the appropriate information, that they know what their obligations are and their full set of obligations and up full set of So does of that include this whistleblower hotline? Does that include this whistleblower hotline, that that's something you'll share with them? I will make sure that they know all of the options that they have. Does that include if this they, whistleblower hotline? It, it, in, it includes this committee, certainly. And this whistleblower hotline? Um, we'll it's yes or no. We'll make sure that they um, are aware. I hope that you do their... for the sake of the American public and for the sake of your IRS employees. Congressman Jason Smith, Republican from Missouri, Ways and Means Committee Chair with the witness today, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. The congressman put out a press release when the IRS whistleblower portal was created in January it reads, the IRS has a disturbing track record of violating the trust of the American taxpayer, whether it's leaking confidential taxpayer information, targeting Americans for their political beliefs, or just failing to perform its most basic customer service responsibilities. 
On Wall Street today, the Dow down 345, S&P down 56, NASDAQ down 199. The FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the federal financial regulator, has closed Silicon Valley Bank and taken control of its deposits. CNBC reports this is the largest U.S. bank failure since the global financial crisis more than a decade ago and that SVB is a key player in the tech and venture capital community. Question about it today at the White House to the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, Cecilia Rouse. It is the 19th largest bank in the U.S. It went down in about 40 hours. What do you say to Americans who have real concerns today about their hard-earned savings and money? Yeah, absolutely. And this is why we have the FDIC and other safeguards in place in our banking system. And what I would say to them is that our Secretary of the Treasury, uh, Secretary Yellen, the bank regulators, those who provide the guardrails and are safeguarding are, are closely watching and are prepared to use the tools that they need. The FDIC stepped in very quickly here. And that's what they were doing, was protecting the deposits of those up to 250000 and then they have a way to unwind the rest. So I will refer you to the FDIC. I will refer you to Treasury that is monitoring the developments in the system. But what I will say to is our banking system is far more resilient than it was in 2008. We learned a lot. Uh, we've got better tools specifically so that we can protect the, the important investments of, of America. Cecilia Rouse chairs the White House Council of Economic Advisors with reporters today in the White House briefing room. Equal Pay Day, the date symbolizing how far into the year women must work to earn what men earned in the previous year, given the average gender pay gap, is March 14th this year. An article in Forbes magazine reads that the average woman earns just 82 cents for every dollar earned by a man. This disparity is even greater for women of color with African-American women earning just 60 cents and Latinas earning only 55 cents for every dollar earned by white, non-Hispanic men. Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro, Democrat from Connecticut, has reintroduced her Paycheck Fairness Act that would, according to a press release from her, combat wage discrimination and help close the wage gap by strengthening the Equal Pay Act of 1963 and ensuring women can challenge pay discriminations and hold employers accountable. Congresswoman DeLauro was at a news conference today about her bill and looking ahead to Equal Pay Day. As more and more American families rely on women's income, we know that the pay gap hurts not only women, but also the families who depend on them. Uh, These young kids who are here today, and while we want them to take this role on as well, families are not able to be able to do what they can do if they are only if the women are not being able to participate fully. Single women who are postponing marriage or foregoing it altogether are a growing economic force, which accounts for there's been a larger share of growth of single women in the job market. There's a recent report on this. I want to say a thank you to Wendy Chunhoon, the 20th director of the Women's Bureau at the Department of Labor. A special thank you to K.J. Spisak, who will talk to her story uh, and having the courage to stand up and speak out. All of the advocates who are here today, you have been just unbelievable partners in this fight. We introduced this bill in 1997, and we ain't given up uh, until it crosses that finish line and the president signs this bill. I've introduced it. 
In every Congress since that time, we have pushed and we have battled to strengthen the Equal Pay Act, make it illegal for employers to pay unequal wages to men and women who perform substantially equal work. Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro, Democrat from Connecticut, at a news conference with other House Democrats and advocates of gender pay equity today. In 2021, when Democrats were in the majority in the House, her Paycheck Fairness Act passed the House on a party-line vote, but failed in the Senate on a procedural vote, not getting the 60 votes needed to advance. Washington Today continues in a moment. Welcome back to Washington Today, which you can get as a podcast wherever you find your podcasts and also on the C-SPAN Now mobile app. U.S. House Today passing a bill unanimously to require the Director of National Intelligence to declassify and make public all information on potential links between the Wuhan Institute of Virology in China and the origins of the COVID-19 virus. The vote today in the House, 419 to 0. The Senate passed this bill by unanimous consent. That is, no senator objected. So it goes to President Biden's desk. Some debate on the House floor before the vote. Congressman Michael Turner, Republican from Ohio, chairs the Intelligence Committee. The American public deserves answers to every aspect of COVID-19 pandemic, including how this virus was created and specifically whether it was a natural occurrence or was the result of a lab-related event. The House Intelligence Committee, which oversees our intelligence community, is aware of classified information that could help inform the public why COVID-19 as a lab leak theory is not just a possibility, but approaches the idea that it is likely. The intelligence community does have more information about COVID-19 than the public is led to believe. Much of the information they have can be declassified and disseminated to the public. In fact, the bill we are discussing today would give the American public just a glimpse, albeit a very important aspect of the classified information the intelligence community holds. S-619, if passed by the House and signed into law, would give the American public a unique insight as to what was happening at a biosafety level laboratory in Wuhan, China in late 2019 and early 2020. This laboratory and who was working there might be the key to unraveling the truth. For those concerned about declassifying COVID-19 origins information, I can assure you that the intelligence community could release this information while protecting their sources and methods of how it was collected. In fact, I believe that the intelligence community could go further than what is called for in S619 and release most of what it knows about COVID origins, but this is a good start. COVID-19 ranks as one of this century's most important events. No community was spared, and every corner of the world felt its effects. Everyone deserves to know what our intelligence community knows about, and S-619 is the right step in the right direction. Congressman Michael Turner, Republican from Ohio, Intelligence Committee Chair on the House floor. The committee's ranking Democrat, Jim Himes of Connecticut, also supported this bill. And he said he's glad the director of national intelligence will be allowed to redact anything in the intelligence about COVID-19 origins that could compromise sources and methods Congressman Himes also taking a minute during the floor debate to discuss what he says are troubling signs about why some people believe one theory or the other about the virus origins. Madam Speaker, democracy is rooted in the idea that the people govern. That is their right to determine their own political destiny. 
But with that right comes an obligation that we don't talk about or think about nearly enough. And that obligation is to be thoughtful, informed, critical thinkers about the issues of the day. And that's not who we are today. Today we have elevated, because of our political polarization, we have elevated confirmation bias to a secular religion. So even in this conversation about the origins of the coronavirus, what you believe is indicative of where you stand on the political spectrum. For reasons I don't understand, some of our colleagues and many Americans are running around with a theory that somehow buttresses their political legitimacy. Maybe you do that with UFOs. Maybe you want to believe that there's aliens at Roswell or whatever you want to believe. That's pretty harmless. But when we're talking about a pandemic or something as serious as a disease that could kill a million Americans, that's not okay. And we have to remember our obligation to be thoughtful, critical thinkers. We cannot let our political hopes override the obligations we have to be thinkers. And colleagues, I will tell you, the chairman and I have seen all of the classified information on this, and we don't know. We don't know the origins of the COVID pandemic. So whatever is ultimately declassified, I would hope that my colleagues in the American people would approach that information with the humility, the intellectual humility that we need to approach something as serious as a pandemic and how we behave as citizens in a democracy. Congressman Jim Himes, ranking Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee today on the House floor. The House joining the Senate in passing this bill unanimously, no votes against, sending it to the president. A question later to the White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre about whether the president will sign it. Will the president sign the legislation that would declassify information about the origins of COVID? So, look, um, I know that it was just passed, if I remember if I remember correctly, it was just passed out of the House today, right? So we're taking a look at the bill. Uh, we have continued to share information, as I've mentioned many times before, with uh, members of Congress. And as you know, the first few months of the president's administration, he, uh, he, uh, he came into office, he directed the intelligence community to de- declassify information, uh, assessing or, uh, COVID origins, and to make that report uh, public to, uh, to, to Americans' people, to the American people, because we know and he understands how important it is to get to the bottom of COVID oranges. We will, origins. We will continue to use every tool to figure out what happened here uh, while also protecting uh, classified information. Again, we're going to take a look at the bill. I just don't have anything to share on how we're going to move forward at this time. Also passed it unanimously. So why would President Biden not something that we're literally gonna, got no opposition in Congress? Uh, I totally understand. It is the right of the President of the United States to look at the legislation that are that is going to be coming before him. Uh, and uh, we'll have more to share. White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre. A CBS News article on this bill has this. The intelligence community has not definitively agreed on the origins of the pandemic. A report in 2021 reflecting the findings of the intelligence community was inconclusive and determined two theories were plausible to explain how the virus emerged, natural exposure to an infected animal and a laboratory-associated incident. The Department of Energy recently concluded, with low confidence, that it is plausible that the virus originated from a lab, a theory supported by the FBI. That from CBS News. Dr. Anthony Fauci, former leader of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, is disputing the testimony of Dr. Robert Redfield, former CDC director, 
who says he was shut out of federal government discussions about the COVID-19 pandemic during the Trump administration because he suggested the virus may have come from a lab leak in China. This is what Dr. Redfield said before House subcommittee on Wednesday. I didn't know I was excluded. I didn't know there was a February 1st conference call until the Freedom of Information came out with the emails, and I was quite upset as the CDC director that I was excluded from those discussions. Why would they do this? Because I had a different point of view, and I was told they made a decision that they would keep this confidential until they came up with a single narrative. This was an a priori decision that there's one point of view that we're going to put out there, and anyone who doesn't agree with it is going to be sidelined. And as I say, I was only the CDC director, and I was sidelined. Dr. Robert Redfield, former director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, at a House subcommittee hearing on Wednesday. Dr. Anthony Fauci responding Thursday on Fox News. I didn't have anything to do about the decision who would be on the call. The evolutionary virologist, Dr. Eddie Holmes, Christian Anderson, all of the others that won, they made the decision who's on the call. I didn't add anybody to the call. So you didn't know going into the call, you didn't know going into the call that the CDC director would not be part of that call. Do you think he should have been? Uh, Well, I mean, retrospectively, it would have been okay to have him on the call, of course, but I didn't put him or take him off. And it's really disturbing that in a public hearing of a congressional hearing, he makes an accusatory statement that has no basis whatsoever in reality. But another point, Neil, that's important, he said in his own mind that he was kept out because he was of the opinion that this might be a lab leak. Half the people on the call were of the opinion that it might be a lab leak. So his rationale of why he thought he was excluded is an invalid rationale. So it's really unfortunate that he made those statements. He's a good guy. I've known him for years. I'm so, I mean, I'm just really a little bit disturbed about why he said that, which it was completely untrue. Dr. Anthony Fauci, former top infectious disease expert in the federal government, on Fox News on Thursday. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican from California, holding an enrollment ceremony today with other House Republicans on legislation that will block a District of Columbia bill that would have made changes to the city's criminal code. The legislation passing the House with significant Democratic opposition. But then President Biden said he would sign it into law rather than veto it. And the bill passed the Senate with over half the Senate Democrats voting yes. Enrollment is the final procedural step before a bill that passes Congress is sent to the president. We're sending a message to every city, to every county, to every state that no longer will Washington be soft on crime. No longer... No longer will we be defunding police. No longer will we be softening sentences. A new Republican majority changes the course. So this may just be a bill that makes D.C. safer, but it is a message for the entire nation that we want safe streets, we want safe communities, we want safe schools, and we know in a bipartisan way that everybody wants the same. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy at the enrollment ceremony on Capitol Hill today for a bill that, when the president signs it into law, will prevent a crime bill passed by Washington, D.C.'s government from going into effect. 
Associated Press reporting that Mexico's president said Thursday that his country does not produce or consume fentanyl, despite enormous evidence to the contrary. President Andres Manuel López Obrador appeared to depict the synthetic opioid epidemic largely as a U.S. problem and said the United States should use family values to fight drug addiction. AP article goes on, his statement came during a visit to Mexico by Liz Sherwood Randall, the White House Homeland Security Advisor, to discuss the fentanyl crisis. It also comes amid calls by some U.S. Republicans to use the U.S. military to attack drug labs in Mexico. Mexican government has acknowledged in the past that fentanyl is produced at labs in Mexico using precursor chemicals imported from China. Fentanyl has been blamed for about 70,000 opioid deaths per year in the United States. Daylight saving time begins early Sunday morning for most of the United States as we spring ahead and move the clocks one hour forward. That'll last until November when we'll move the clocks back an hour to standard time. The U.S. Senate passed a bill last year by unanimous consent that would end the clock adjusting and make daylight saving time permanent. But the House did not take it up. Senate sponsors have reintroduced that legislation again this year. It's titled the Sunshine Protection Act. One of the supporters, Senator Patty Murray, Democrat from Washington State, talking about it on KCPQ-TV, Fox 13, Seattle. I think all of us just dread the two weekends a month where we gain an hour, lose an hour. It's chaos for our families. People struggle with it. you got to change all your clocks, really for no reason. And what our bill simply does is put the country on daylight savings time permanently. And by the way, that means next winter it won't be dark at 4 o'clock, which I know so many of us dread. This just seems like a practical solution. It's an antiquated idea, and I really believe it's time to change. So what are the benefits to making daylight saving time permanent here? I think one of the great benefits for those of us in the Pacific Northwest is that it won't get dark so early in the winter, which is depressing. We don't do as much work. We don't get out and, you know, get any exercise and it's hard on our kids. Um, But I think just generally having the same pattern all year long is so important. The chaos, I mean, if you have a newborn child and you just got them to get into a sleep pattern and you have to change it, it's just awful. People go to work in the morning. They know what they're out all of a sudden it's an hour ahead or an hour behind. It just creates chaos, and there is no reason to have to do this. Senator Patty Murray, Democrat from Washington State, on a Seattle TV station on Thursday, ahead of this weekend's switch to daylight saving time. A Washington Post article on this this week has this paragraph. The political logjam might be best encapsulated by Washington State, whose representatives control the two committees that oversee daylight saving time policy. Senator Maria Cantwell, Democrat, who leads the Senate Commerce Committee, and Congresswoman Kathy McMorris-Rogers, Republican, who leads the Energy and Commerce Committee. While the Washington State Legislature and Governor have pushed for permanent daylight saving time, both Senator Cantwell and Congresswoman McMorris-Rogers have declined to take a position. And their staffs were similarly noncommittal about whether the committees would bring the bill up for review. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter, Word for Word, to get the stories Washington is talking about sent to your inbox every day. Subscribe at c-span.org forward slash connect. Have a good night and weekend. 